0: If you have your Bibles, and I hope that you do, join me in turning to the book of Colossians chapter 3, Colossians chapter 3 and verse number 12. This is the second part of a holiday series of sermons we're calling here Home for the Holidays, focused on how really we interact with our friends and family during the holiday season. That, that might seem like a step or two removed from the ordinary focus during the Christmas season when it comes to preaching, but I have found that this is an area where we stand to either discredit ourselves or to validate our confessions with regards to the power of the gospel and its transformative work in our life. Last week, we talked about the virtue of love. Jesus said, you will have love for one another, and by this all men will know that you are my disciples. Love should be characteristic of the Christ follower. But this morning I want to talk about a second virtue, which is likewise near the heart of the gospel, that is forgiveness. So there's sort of a natural progression in this series of messages and our objections to or resistance to the direction of God with regards to moving beyond difficult offenses or circumstances. I could pretty well forecast the kinds of conversations that would follow after last week's message. And they, they go something along these lines. Pastor A, B, or C happened in my life, or pastor, you just can't imagine the depth of pain that came with this offense at some time in the past. Now, sometimes that's offered in the way of conversation as a justification for continuing the disruption in relationship, but often it's just an observation to give give air to the fact that I have been hurt or offended in a deep and very painful way. If you can get to this soft-hearted place of expressing love or care for the one who has offended you, that's sort of step one, but you've not quite arrived until you've come to the place of being able to grant full pardon and forgiveness for whatever offense has happened to you at some point in the past. We hope to land at that place in our study of Colossians 3, verses 12 through 17 this morning, forgiving Those unforgivable things that have happened to us in the past. If you found your way to Colossians 3 and 12, join me in standing out of respect and honor for the reading of God's holy word. Colossians 3 verse 12. Here's what God's word says. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience Accepting one another and forgiving one another if anyone has a complaint against another. Just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Above all, put on love the perfect bond of unity. And let the peace of the Messiah to which you were also called in one body control your hearts. Be thankful. Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms, hymns, and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to God. And whatever you do, in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. May the Lord bless the reading and the preaching of his word. You may be seated. So I've kind of divided the passage in this way, although I'll confess there's a bit of overlap in these three. The message, which is that in love, we are to forgive others. That's, that's sort of the what. What are we to do? We are to love others, to forgive others in that love, even as Christ has forgiven us. What's the motivation? How are we motivated to forgive others? The answer is the gospel. The why is the gospel. What are we to do? We are to forgive. Why are we to do it? Because of the gospel. And then third and lastly, the means. How do we see this through? What, what power has God entrusted to our care that would enable this audacious thing of forgiving others who have sinned against us, sometimes in very painful ways? How do we see that through? Let's start together in verse number 12. Paul identifies his target audience. Therefore, God's chosen ones, holy and loved. He's speaking specifically here to the church. Those who have come under the blood of the lamb, those who have been indwelt by and empowered by the Holy Spirit of God, those who have been saved by grace through faith, those who have received the forgiveness of sin that can only come through Jesus, put on heartfelt compassion, kindness, humility, gentleness, and patience, accepting one another and forgiving one another. If anyone has a complaint against another, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. Paul strings together this list of virtues, compassion, and forgiveness, and peace, and unity, and gratitude he binds these together they might be understood collectively as what it means or what it looks like to be genuinely kind to those around us if you want to know what it looks like to love people Paul has given expression to that in verses 12 and 13 you show them compassion you show them kindness and humility and gentleness and patience although there seems to be some guard built into our passage warning us against a certain ability to do this in a way that is disaffectionate, in a way that's not motivated by love. In verse 14, he says, above all, put on love the perfect bond of peace. The way it's stated, it's as though he groups together all of these virtues and says, the capstone for these virtues is love. The way you give expression to these virtues is in love, not in this removed disingenuine way. We don't just do these acts of kindness or these deeds to be recognized or to check the box or to meet some obligation God has given us. We are genuinely motivated by love. All of these virtues are fueled by concern for others. This is one of the early transitions that ought to be taking place in our heart as we're brought from the old man to the new man. It was one of the earliest assurances of my own salvation when I observed in myself this this distinct difference in the way I had treated people in the past and how I now was inclined to treat people in Christ. Now, I know this may be astonishing to you given my eternally pleasant disposition now, but in my old days... If, if there was anything that was characteristic of me as a human being, it was that I was mean, and I mean, I mean mean with teeth. And and I I, I remember sort of being back in that old circle, r- removed for a time from that circle of friends, but, but on this occasion back together with them and in the throes of the moment being influenced by them and determining in an instant, I'm going to give expression to the meanness of the old man and just not having the capacity to do what would have come very, very easy to me months prior. It was almost astonishing. This was not a church moment. This was not a a private devotional moment. In fact, this was a moment when, when I was moving away from the gospel and being stopped by the spirit of God in my tracks and realizing what I used to do. I don't have a capacity to do anymore. Now I warn you, you can train that capacity, you can restore that capacity, even under the influence of the Spirit. You can quench the work of God's Spirit and go back to that place. But in a way I had not known before, I did not have it in my heart to do what would have otherwise come so easy to me, except for the transforming power of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Love is the capstone for all of these virtues. And in the gospel comes an ability. To love people you would have otherwise hated. Or at a at a minimum. Been disconnected to. In some careless or ambivalent kind of way. The virtues of compassion. Forgiveness, peace, unity and gratitude. Are bound together by love. And Paul calls us here in these verses. To clothe ourselves with these virtues. These are to be characteristic of The people of God. Look at that last sentence in verse number 13. The Bible says here, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you must also forgive. I I think we're teetering on the edge here of, of motivation, what it is that moves us to grant this kind of forgiveness. But at a minimum, we're provided with something of a definition of what forgiveness ought to look like for us. When we hear God say things that are audacious, that are hard, that seem stern or severe, our tendency is to domesticate the statement, to bring it down to a level that's suitable to us, a level that we can manage on our own. But Paul defines for us what it looks like to forgive here. He says, just as the Lord has forgiven you, so you also forgive. We have all kinds of rationalizations for how we forgive, but in lesser ways than what the Lord intends. We say things like, well, I'll forgive, but that doesn't mean I'll forget. But what the Bible says is that when God forgives us of our sin, our sins are cast as far from his mind as the East is from the West. Now, there's an element of wisdom that must enter in here. There are certain fences. There are certain things that can unfold that require certain fences or guardrails be placed on a person's life or on our life to ensure those things don't ever happen again in the future. But that's an issue that is distinct from the matter of forgiveness. Without qualification and without exception, even under the most severe of circumstances, the call of God on the life of the believer is to forgive indiscriminately. No matter what has happened to you, the call of the gospel is to forgive those who have offended, even those who have offended in the deepest of ways. Now note here that there is no express concern for the offender in the passage. What I mean by that is not that you don't care about them. What I mean is that when it comes to employing this practice, exercising these virtues, Paul and us are unconcerned about the response of the offender, him or herself. In in other words, it really doesn't matter if they care about your forgiveness or not. Again, we forgive. We touched on this a bit last week because it is morally right to do so. We'll deal with motivation in the next passage. As the Lord has forgiven you, so you likewise forgive. This is near the heart of the gospel. You and I have been forgiven of our greatest sins by Jesus and the product of that ought to be an ease with forgiveness toward those who sin against us. The message is in love, we are to forgive one another. What is the motivation? How are we moved? And we've touched on this just a bit already. Look to verse number 15. Let the peace of the Messiah, to which you are also called in one body, control your hearts. My understanding of this verse Is that this is a clever way, already fleshed out to some extent, of saying, let your hearts be controlled by the message of the gospel. Let your hearts be controlled by the implications of the gospel in your life. Let your hearts be controlled by the doctrines that undergird, that support, that hold together the gospel, and peace particularly is mentioned here as near the heart of the gospel, the product of what we know about the gospel. Here's what I mean by all of that, if you're not confused enough already. We talked last week for just a few minutes about doctrine dancing in our life, how we need to believe with depth, But what that means for most people is not deep enough. Deep teaching for most in our cultural context means there's a lot of information. And the information can be sort of philosophical in tone and difficult to grasp. So labor that that you build a bank of information in your mind. And that's good. I'm, I'm pro that. I'm just saying that's not deep enough. If what you believe about the gospel has the potential to tangle your mind, but doesn't influence your blood pressure, you haven't believed deeply enough. I believe, for instance, in the absolute sovereignty of God over all things. It is the single biblical doctrine that settles my soul the most. It is the most cherished doctrine to me in all of God's word because it means stability for my life. It means the lordship of Jesus over all things, it means that nothing can happen to me that doesn't serve my good and the glory of his name because he has promised and he who has promised is faithful. But there are times when, when I see things happen around me, when the circumstances of my life don't feel like the direct intervention of Jesus for me and I grow worried and concerned. You know what the source of that worry, you know what the source of that anxiety is? A disbelief in the very doctrine I have just claimed to believe with all my heart. And when anxiety comes your way, when frustration and bitterness and hostility comes your way, it is the direct product of a breakdown of conviction with regards to the very things we know about the gospel. The reason you're anxious is because you fail in that moment to believe in the lordship of Jesus over all things. The reason you can wrestle with and struggle with unforgiveness and bitterness is because you've convinced yourself in your pride that you somehow deserve more than you've received. You forget about the humility that is demanded of us as we acknowledge our sinfulness before God and how in spite of our wretched state, Christ died for us. We convince ourselves of worldly truths and in doing so, deny the truths of the gospel that would otherwise still our soul. We are motivated as a people to interact with the world around us, to respond whatever the circumstances may look like for us by the message of the gospel. Acknowledging the lordship of Jesus over all things changes our perspective on everything. We take peace in knowing of of his authority. That stills the anxious soul. And how many doctrines impact so many other areas of our life. It it is that we need to know more about the gospel, but we need to do more than just know about the gospel. We need to live in light of what we know about the gospel, and for that to have bearing in the deepest, most meaningful of ways. The remainder of of that little verse there is just a two-word statement, a single sentence with just two words. The last sentence in verse 15, it says, Be thankful that's an appropriate moniker for days after thanksgiving right it's always interesting to me how as christians these christian holidays how far adrift we can get from the intent of the holiday seasons in those holiday seasons like doing things that are counterproductive to giving thanks during the thanksgiving season like stuffing ourselves as gluttons Moaning and groaning and napping through the afternoon about our misery, having eaten three times what we should have eaten. Something about that and gratitude just never really fits in my mind, right? The Christmas season, we celebrate how undeserving we are. We celebrate grace that we don't deserve, but but we do that by lavishing ourselves and those around us with gifts and those gifts given on the basis of their deservedness, whether or not you have been naughty or nice. We drift, we drift, we drift. Here we're simply called upon to be thankful, to be mindful of the grace that has been afforded us in Jesus. And I would suggest to you this sentence here, this little two-word sentence is, perfectly placed as gratitude often serves as a vaccine against against not just ingratitude but bitterness and unforgiveness and hostility when you come away from that worldly conviction that somehow you deserve more than you've received or that you somehow deserve something you've not received it's much much easier to walk in gladness of heart at the rich grace that god has shown you through his son jesus christ So the what is forgive, and the why is the gospel, but how in the world do we see this through? Verses 16 and following give us some practical counsel with regards to fulfilling this responsibility. Verse 16 says, Let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you, which is, by the way, not far from what was said in verse 15, let the peace of the Messiah, to which you were called in one body, control your hearts. We are to be controlled by the foundation of our heart is the message of the gospel. But the way we see to that is by affording that the message of the gospel dwell richly among us. In other words, we become individually gospel people and we become collectively as a body gospel people. And what I mean by that is not something that's far off or obscure, but that we are a people who are always in conversation about. Always singing, always celebrating, always remembering the message of the gospel. And, and, and by that, I just mean the gospel. Now Nowadays, it seems that everything's gospel, somehow connected to the gospel. No, the gospel is the gospel, that God has loved us so much that he sent his only son, that he would live without sin, that he would die a criminal's death on the cross in spite of his absolute innocence. He would die the death we deserve to die. That his body, buried in a borrowed grave after three days, would be raised again. Jesus would be raised from the grave that by faith in him, we might have the newness of life by resurrection power. Being a gospel people means that individually and collectively, we are ever celebrating, ever remembering, ever conversing about the message of the gospel. That has a function. It serves a purpose. Reminding us of those doctrines, reminding us of the message that motivates us to forgive, that stills the anxious soul, that grants the power to overcome even the greatest of offenses against us. One of the the real, I think, powerful realities of this business of forgiveness is is there's liberty here. There's, There's freedom here. Yes, the gospel frees us from sin and its power over our life, the consequences of those sins, but more there's freedom from bitterness and hostility and hatred, freedom from the dreadful results of of your temptation. Worldly theory of the day is that you're the product of your environment. Whatever's happened in your life, you are bound to identify with those past experiences or offenses. But the message of the gospel is that you don't have to be defined by your former way of life. Whether it be those sins that you committed or the sins that were committed against you. You are a new man or new woman in Christ free from sin and free from the sins committed against you. Let the message of Christ, let the gospel dwell richly among you be a gospel person ever rejoicing in the truth of that message and the freedom it provides for you but there's more here let the message about the Messiah dwell richly among you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom I hope that the product of our gathering together for sermons like this is that in some way you're able to leave with sermonettes in your heart. I hope the product of your daily devotional time is that you're able to come away from the, from the prayer closet with sermonettes in your heart. That you're able, over the course of time, to preach back to yourself, reminding yourself of the truth of the gospel. When, when you're tempted to be troubled, that you'll remind yourselves of the promises of God for you. Maybe when the future looks bleak and you're not sure of how provision might be made. That you'll preach to your heart privately, personally. That little sermon that says my God shall supply all my needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. That you'll remind yourselves of the truths of the gospel that would settle your spirit in that moment. You'll know That the overwhelming majority of the New Testament is not about introducing new information. It's about reminding the church of what she already knows. And it's this war of seen versus unseen. We've received the promises of an unseen God. And we believe them and we believe them and we believe them. But we depart this place, we leave the prayer closet, we come away from our devotional reading, and we make observations that seem to be in conflict with the promises of an unseen God. We're left but to preach to our hearts in our doubt, in our skepticism, when we can't see how it might work out that God is faithful and true. He can be trusted with his promises. We teach the gospel to our heart. How do you forgive? The unforgivable sin. How do you forgive the unforgivable person? How do you forgive the person that doesn't care about receiving your forgiveness? You preach the message of the gospel to your heart again and again and again. And when you're inclined to allow that bitterness and unforgiveness would fester there, you preach all the more that God, in His great grace, while you were yet a sinner, sent forth His Son in your undeserved state. Jesus died on the cross in your place. And in that little sermonette, find the power and the ability to see things from a heavenly perspective and grant forgiveness you didn't know you had the power to grant not only are we called upon here to teach the gospel to our hearts we're called upon to sing the gospel to our hearts let the message about the messiah dwell richly among you teaching and admonishing one another in all wisdom and singing psalms hymns and spiritual songs with gratitude in your hearts to god one of the most efficient and effective ways to pull your mind out of the gutter of worldly thinking and to focus on the things of God is to sing the gospel to your heart. A little country church where I was baptized and began to grow in grace, we sang the same hymns. You could, you know, there, was, there was 20 or 30 of them. And they were just on repeat. You just sang the same hymns again. Mostly because, you know, you sang what you knew, had somebody that knew how to play it on the piano. And you sang what you had voices to be able to sing. And you sang the same verses again and again and again. And that would be a grind to some of you. But for me, as a new believer, it established for me the playlist of my heart that helped me to be able to to make war against the thoughts of my mind. Thoughts. That had been influenced for nearly 20 years by the ways of this world. It was a way for me to bring every thought captive to obedience to Christ. To sing the gospel to my wicked heart. To remind myself that he sought me and he bought me by his redeeming blood. That there was victory for me in Christ To remind me to see things from an eternal perspective that when we've been there 10,000 years, we'll no less days to sing his praise than when we first begun. And those old songs sung again and again and again became the playlist of my heart and the means for me to sing to myself in my own little personal private worship service, my own little church service of the goodness of God and to chase away the doubt and the skepticism that can come with life. In this world, and to resist the temptation to take on the ways of this world, which are unforgiveness and bitterness and hostility, and to grant the grace that is out of this world a grace only found in Jesus. Here, the text teaches us that the means for conducting ourselves in this supernatural way is that we would preach the gospel to our hearts and that we would sing the gospel in our hearts. But more than this in verse 17, that we would live out the gospel in every sphere of our life. Verse 17 says, Whatever you do in word or in deed, do everything in the name of the Lord Jesus, giving thanks to God the Father through him. Last week's passage, we looked at Romans 12 And there, there was this little phrase that seemed ill-fitting, serve the Lord. We're talking about loving people and showing kindness, and then it just says, serve the Lord. And it appears again here, everything we do, whether in word or in deed, we do all things in the name of Jesus. It's talking about a shift in perspective, a shift in outlook. That your interactions, even around Thanksgiving and Christmas dinners with your family, that all of your personal interactions are a means of drawing glory and honor and praise to Jesus. Let me tell you when God is glorified when we grant forgiveness where there's been offense against us. Never are we more like the Father than when we forgive those who've offended us. This is a beautiful and powerful thing to see to see like you see them as we got to do this thing, right? And some of you are like, we got to do this thing. We got to go see him or her. And all of you have one, right? You know, sometimes sometimes when I share about family and experiences, I think we we probably got more dysfunction than most anybody else. And then I talk to y'all. We're all jacked up. All of us. You've all got them. Every family in this room has mixed up, twisted up people that you are not looking forward to seeing for the Christmas season. Your interactions with them provide you with a unique opportunity to draw glory and honor and praise to Jesus as you conduct yourself toward them, even as Christ has conducted himself toward you. It really is a powerful opportunity. When I was a teenage boy, I was like most teenage boys. I spent the early hours of my day or the later hours of the day, depending on what day of the week it was, watching that sixty minute cycle of ESPN Sports Center. If you're in your thirties, you you know exactly what I'm that's what you did. You got up and you watched that sixty minute cycle multiple times before you would allow that the day would start. Your parents and your grandparents hated it. They'd seen it all three times, but you had to get that fourth round because there was three minutes that you missed for a bathroom break or something, right? But in our day, in in our experiences, and our fascination with the world of athletics, there was a shift that was beginning to take place. I didn't appreciate it then, but but I've come in hindsight to understand more of, of what we were witnessing. There was a shift away from the traditional form or format for sports broadcasting where you had sports broadcasters there seated and they were reporting much like the nightly news to a situation where there were two broadcasters positioned one on either side of the desk. And rather than the 60-minute cycle of information, there was the 30-minute cycle of them yelling and screaming in one another's face, debating various issues and what had in reality unfolded in the most recent sports news cycle. And before long, that made its way into news in general, not just sports news, but news in general. And what they had tapped into was a shift that was already underway in our culture where every fact, every tidbit would be in hot debate. They were mimicking what was already bubbling up in our culture, which has culminated in a spirit of discord and divisiveness divisiveness like virtually no other time in living history. I know that Solomon said there is nothing new under the sun, but in living history, I truly do not believe there has been a more divisive season than we're currently existing in at the present hour. So while Jesus is saying, forgive and show gentleness and hospitality and kindness and do all of this under the capstone of love, The world is saying discord and disunity and debate and argumentation are are the way we should go. It's most important that you prove that you are right, that you correct every wrong, that you inform the uninformed. Jesus is calling us to a tender humility, a forgiveness and a grace like unto what he has shown us by the shedding of his blood and the yielding forth of his life on our behalf. The point I want you to see is this, that this season that God has afforded us the opportunity to exist in provides a remarkably dark backdrop that the light of the gospel would show forth with great power as we carry ourselves, not as we've been trained by the world, but as Jesus has transformed our heart by the gospel. You walk worthy of your calling in this way, and it will set you apart. It will make you distinct from those around you, often in the most powerful of ways. You love, and you forgive, and you carry yourself with a tender meekness, with a kindness toward others, and you will be unlike the overwhelming majority of those around you. This is what Christ has called us to do because of the gospel we forgive others even as Christ has forgiven us you know just and i've been critical of this but i'll just give you a worldly motivation for forgiveness and for grace I think sometimes, and I, I can remember, I could take you to the place. I was, I was sitting in my Mississippi State beanbag at about 11 or 12 years old in my bedroom. And I said to myself, I will not live like this. I will not be a part of discord. And this, I was a lost kid, but I determined in that moment, I am not going to live like this. And I, I, I'm, I'm not that guy now. I hate conflict. I'll do anything that I can to alleviate that and, and try to work through it. And, and sometimes it's not a spiritual motivation at all. I'm just too lazy to deal with it. Now, I don't know where some some people get the energy to invest in maintaining grudges. over. Like where do you find the time and the effort to be able to put in? Some, some people just need a job or a hobby or something to do in their spare time, right? i got to tell you, not only is it a a beautifully liberating thing to grant forgiveness to those around you, it it is a beautiful, liberating thing to receive the forgiveness of our Savior. Do you remember? Do you you remember how the weight of sin was crushing in? And and even, even for those of us who may not be terribly emotional, people there was just a break in that moment maybe you expressed it in in different ways but but there was a weight in that moment that was just more than than you could bear and and how the gospel rang true with you in power in a way that it never had before And the release and the lifting of that burden that came with knowing that Christ has died for our sin and risen again. That in Jesus there is forgiveness and there is mercy. And though the world around me may charge me with wrong, I have been declared innocent in the counsels of the Father. Do you remember? Do you remember that? Do you remember that? Oh, how freeing, what a beautiful, precious thing it it was. And, And it is that even on my worst day, when I foul it up, as much as it can conceivably be fouled up, that there is grace and mercy for me in the Father. No one forgives like Jesus forgives. Brothers and sisters, if you don't know that forgiveness... You need only look to Christ, believe on the power of his name to cleanse and to forgive and trust your soul to him. And you'll find not only forgiveness of your sin, but the promise of everlasting life in his presence. It is a precious, it is a beautiful, it is a liberating thing to find full faith in Jesus. Would you come to him? And for those of you who, who know him. But you have foregone the fullness of joy that might otherwise be yours in favor of bitterness and unforgiveness. Make today the last day. No matter what's happened against you, forgive in the power of God's Holy Spirit supernaturally do what's not naturally possible to you by the power of the spirit of jesus grant forgiveness even undeserved forgiveness and find the liberty and the freedom that comes with the removal of that great weight would you join me in going to god and asking that he be pleased to grant just those things father thank you for your son jesus and the forgiveness that we find in him God, I I pray that you would lift the weight of guilt and the burden of sin. That you would help those who don't know Christ to look to him. To give eyes of faith, God, that they might see the mercy that may be found in the Son of God. Might they find that experience, that forgiveness. Might they find the new birth in him today before it's everlasting too late. I pray, God, for all of the many thousands of relationships that are represented in this room, that you would help us to see them, Lord, not as an end in themselves, but a means to the end that Christ might be glorified in all of our life. Help us to see things from that perspective. Grant it so in Jesus' name and for his glory. Amen. We're going to have a time of invitation and commitment. I'm going to invite you, if you would, to stand where you are. Go ahead and stand. This time, if you would come away from the cares and concerns of this world, trade them all in for what can only be found in Jesus, forgiveness and grace and mercy. You come into one of these aisles and down front. You, You come, and we'll do our best to show you what the Bible says about the next steps in your journey with Jesus maybe you're here as one of those people with bitterness and unforgiveness in your heart and you'd seek prayer and encouragement as to how to address. I I realize that I've spoken to these things in a very simplistic way and some of the relationship issues and challenges represented here are a tangled web of issues that may take many hours to unwind. If that's you, come and we'll pray and begin and do everything we can to show you what the Bible says about moving forward in that relationship and restoring reconciliation. Reconciliation. Maybe you're here and and you've believed, but you've never been faithful in baptism. And this morning's testimony in baptism is compelling to you and for you and a reminder of the need to fully surrender to the command of Christ over your life. Maybe God's called you into the fellowship of our church. We'd love to have you as a part of our faith family. As he leads you, come. We're going to sing together as God and his spirit calls. As it's apparent to you, given the teaching of this text, some response needs to be followed through with, you come, may the Lord's will be done. Let's sing together.
1: Oh, come to the altar, the bride. Oh, what a Savior! Isn't He wonderful? Sing hallelujah! Christ is risen.
0: As our ushers come to receive our offering, would you join me in prayer? Father, thank you for the chance to give back, make our hearts cheerful and glad impact our neighbors and the nations around us through the generosity of your people. May the world know that Jesus is King. We ask it in Christ's name.